Welcome to the Granite Gals podcast. This is the podcast where we interview female hikers who hike the right mountains. I am Alexandra Her, And I am Sage Her. We are 14 and 12 year old hikers who have been hiking the 4,000 footers since we were little. We have done the 4,000 footers, the 52 with the view, trail rights, and many other mountains. In this podcast, we mention two terms that listeners may not recognize. To do the grid is to complete all the 4,000 footers in every month of the year, but this doesn't need to be completed in one calendar year. To redline is to hike all the trails in the White Mountain Guidebook. The opinions that we personally express in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of our interviewee or of any organizations we may mention. Hello everyone, welcome to Granite Gals. Since Alex is at camp, I will be conducting today's interview alone. Today I am interviewing Liz Wyman, a four-season hiker and a guide. Welcome to Granite Gals. <laughs> Thank you, Sage. Pleasure to be here. I love the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. So when did you start hiking and why do you like to hike? Oh boy. My first hikes were when I was a child. I grew up in the Monadnock region and it was just a tradition to climb Mount Monadnock with my parents once a year. But that was kind of all I ever did with my family growing up. When I was in high school, I went to a summer camp in the White Mountains called Horton Center on Pine Mountain up in Gorham. And so every summer our cabin unit would go on a hike. And that was probably my first introduction to the White Mountains and to hiking in the Whites. And at that time it was really, really hard. I mean, I was a high school kid. I hadn't (laughs) hiked before. What seemed like a moderate hike to the hike leaders was, you know, really challenging for a lot of us. So I remember my first 4,000 footer was at camp. We did Mariah and they said it was going to be a moderate hike and it was 10 miles, you know, up and back. (laughs) And, you know, I just had these cheap old hiking boots that were ill-fitting. And I remember getting to the top of the mountain and just feeling like I could not walk another step. (laughs) I was crying. I didn't know how I was going to get down this thing. I had to push on and I had to push that other five miles back to town and get down there. So, you know, that was, that, that was not the greatest introduction to hiking because it was, you know, it was, it was pretty painful (laughs) and I didn't do much hiking on my own after that for a number of years. And then when I, when I got out of school, I worked for the AMC, um, one of my first jobs out of grad school, and that was when I first heard about doing the 48 4,000 footers and peak bagging as a list, and at the time I thought it was kind of silly, why would you hike all these random mountains (laughs) on a list, you know, just because they're a certain height. A lot of them don't have views, but I kept it kind of in the back of my mind, and in 2010, I was looking to get back in shape. I had actually moved up to Lancaster and lived there for a couple years. Realized I wasn't doing much hiking, you know, I was just doing a lot of stuff around the house, wanted an excuse to get out, and I remembered the peak bagging list. I was like, that's what I need. I need a goal. So decided to start doing the 48 in 2010. I was married at the time, so I did 31 or 32 of them with my ex-husband, kind of as a thing we did together. And then when the marriage ended, it was something I decided I really wanted to finish on my own. Kind of got the bug when I finished my 48, you know, and and went on to do the winter 48, the 67, winter 67, 100 highest, and I'm close to finishing the winter 100 highest. So I I just, I love being out there because I think it just clears my head. There's so much going on in the world, so much going on in life. Getting out on the trail and just walking is the best form of meditation for me. And... I think it's not a luxury, it's a necessity for me. I need that in my life. (laughs) What is your favorite 4K and why? That's that's such a hard question. (laughs) I I think my favorite 
memory, um, and this isn't a New Hampshire peak, but my first hike of Katahdin was just this incredible experience. It was two years ago when I was starting to work on the New England 67. I went up there, went up into Baxter State Park on my own, had a reservation, and I did this amazing loop up the Helan Taylor Trail, the Knife Edge, summited Katahdin and Hamlin, came down Hamlin Ridge Trail on this spectacular day. And it also happened to be the day in that year that Scott Jurek finished the AT on Katahdin and set oh. the, the record. <laughs> so I was up there when he finished and, you yeah. know, there... Um, <laughs> Uh, it was just a really magical moment, a really beautiful day, saw moose on my way up, went swimming on uh, Basin Pond on my way down, and so I just have such an incredible memory of that, and Katahdin, you know, in Baxter State Park is just one of the most wild places in the Northeast, that's probably my favorite, but I mean, in the whites, you know, I don't think in terms of peaks so much as trails, and I love the Crawford Path from Summit of Washington across the Southern Presidentials, and just the amazing views, and uh, there's so many good peaks. <laughs> cool. What lists or mountains besides the 4Ks have you hiked or are you working on? You've sort of answered that before, but are there any other ones? And what do you enjoy about them specifically? After I finished my regular season 48 in 2013, I, um, I took some winter hiking workshops and learned to winter hike and finished that list in two seasons in uh, March of 2015. And then it was after that, that summer, that I finished the regular season 67, did a lot of hiking in Maine and I had done Vermont the summer before. And then winter of 2016, got my winter 67 and then went on. And as soon as I was done with that, pushed for the 100 highest. And what I enjoy about those specific lists, it was really fun to hike in some new places. I love doing new trails. I love discovering new mountains. And that was really the thing that hooked me on the lists, was forcing me to get out and explore <laughs> new places. So I just, I loved especially discovering all the mountains in Maine and up in the Rangeley and Stratton area. And, and it was exciting to start to learn about bushwhacking too, which was never really my favorite thing to do. But now that I've gotten more skill at it, it's really empowering to be able to navigate through the woods and, you know, and gaining winter hiking skills was also super empowering. I mean, you know how <laughs> the conditions can be up there yeah. and the decisions you have to make. So I just really love how much the peak bagging lists have opened me up to new places and new experiences. Where have you hiked in addition to the Way Mountains? What is your favorite place to hike outside the Northeast? You know, I haven't done a lot of hiking outside of New England. I did one one-night backpacking trip in the Three Sisters Wilderness in Oregon many years ago, and it was gorgeous. Haven't had the opportunity to do much else, and I just I love it so much here. I've lived here for, um, well, grew up in New Hampshire, but lived in the Whites for almost a decade now, and I feel like I could never stop exploring this place. Yeah. I just feel like there's a lifetime of stuff to do here that I don't really feel compelled to travel for hiking but um you know I've I also got into backpacking two years ago so I've section hiked the Appalachian Trail just through Maine and New Hampshire so far about 450 miles and I've loved doing that it's just a different experience than peak bagging getting to feel like a part of the through hiker culture and I told you right before coming here I dropped off three through hikers who just came and <laughs> stayed at my house and zeroed for a couple of days <laughs> I'd say that the AT experience has been really fun and hoping to work my way south as a section hiker and hopefully maybe through hike someday too. <laughs> cool. 
So, you are a tour guide for Redline Guiding. What do you like most about being a guide? Are there any things you dislike about it? Oh gosh, I would have to say that the best thing about guiding, and I guide for Redline, and I'm also a class one winter hike leader with the Appalachian Mountain Club. I just got my certification this past winter. My favorite thing about leading trips is the people I meet. I mean, <laughs> like you and your sister and your mom, and uh, you know, there are just so many awesome people. I mean, hikers, as you know, are just good people, and I've made a lot of great friends. And what I really love about guiding too, it was a lot of fun this past winter to lead some introductory winter hiking workshops and some beginner winter hikes and um, kind of be able to pass on the knowledge that I've gained from the people that I learned from because winter hiking especially you really need to acquire a set of skills to do it safely yeah. and do it well as you know and I felt proud to be at the point uh, and have the opportunity to share those skills with other people and get people to the top of their first winter 4,000 footer when it's five below zero and the winds are howling and they didn't think that they were going to make it. And that pride, that sense of accomplishment that they share, is it's really satisfying. In terms of anything I dislike about it, I think the only hard part is feeling responsible for everybody's safety and I mean I am a wilderness first responder I, I have a lot of training and experience with risk management stuff but I always just want to make sure that everybody on my trips is happy and safe and enjoying themselves and having a good experience so I think that's the one stressor for me is really trying to instead of focusing on myself focusing on everybody in the group and making sure they have a fabulous trip. <laughs> so you have a background in botany. How has studying plant life changed your experience on the trails? Oh gosh, I mean I, I love plants. I've always loved plants and I think that learning the plants through courses I took in, in grad school in both the tree identification, wildflower identification, ferns, all that kind of stuff being able to identify and name things it makes it feel like whenever I go out on the trail like I'm seeing old friends you know <laughs> it's like oh there's the yellow birch and there's the painted trillium and you know and there's the interrupted fern or whatever and uh, I, I think yeah just being able to name things makes me see them more and see them better and appreciate them more and I really love sharing that knowledge with people I mean any of my friends who hike with me will tell you that, you know, I'm always doing my, my naturalist guide thing when we're out on the trail. If we're in kind of a boring part, I'll entertain people with information about trees, <laughs> which most people seem to enjoy. Yeah, it, I think it's really enriching, and I wish it was something that more people, you know, knew or took an interest in. And part of what I do through my work is to try to make people care about that kind of thing. <laughs> Have you ever experienced sexism directed towards you on the trail? That's a really interesting question. I'm glad that you ladies bring that up in your podcast because I think it's important for people to think about and for people to be aware of. I can't say that I've experienced sexism just randomly on the trail from other hikers. Not as much of an overt sexism, but I think that there is still kind of a covert sexism among a lot of hikers, male and female. What I've experienced particularly as a guide is that if I'm guiding trips or even just hiking in a group with other male friends, I've found that sometimes 
there have been experiences where somebody in the group has had a question and I've been standing right there and the male guide has been standing right there and they'll direct the question towards the man and when I try to jump in if it's something that I feel as knowledgeable or maybe in some cases more knowledgeable about and I try to kind of get in on the conversation and share that information oftentimes the person then continues the conversation with the man instead of kind of you know as if I'm not there or they somehow don't trust my expertise you know being a woman I mean particularly with like winter hiking and and things like that that's frustrating and I've seen both men and women do this so I think it's just some kind of latent bias that people have maybe assuming that a woman hiker doesn't have as much experience or knowledge particularly with rough terrain or with winter hiking or harsh conditions or long trips or that kind of thing So, yeah, you know, that can be frustrating at times and makes you realize that we haven't quite reached the point in our society where we want to be, I think, in terms of equality. And it's just something for folks to think about. Even with some of the thru-hikers that I've met, heard things like that happening on the trail and stuff. So I think it's something for all hikers to be aware of. It's a bias that we might all be prone to if we don't you know, actively seek to squash it. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's what makes the difference if you recognize that in yourself and then try to stop it. Yeah. Either if you just don't care. Yeah, I think it's an important thing to think about and to talk about and particularly even to point out. I mean, I didn't have the opportunity in all of those situations to tell the people, you know, how that made me feel and it may not always be appropriate to do that, but... If you're with a group of friends and something like that happens, I think it's good to talk about it. I think people just don't realize or don't think, you know, it may even be something subtle. Like a female thru-hiker was telling me how the guys were always offering to like help her up the steep parts or something like that. And they may just think that they're being chivalrous or being kind or helpful. But to the woman, it may feel like they believe that she has lesser skills. And I think it's just important to plant that seed of awareness for everybody to be thinking about it in those terms. (laughs) Tell us about your most memorable animal encounters on the trail. Oh, man. I've had some good ones, mostly all involving moose. (laughs) (laughs) My first moose I saw on the trail was up on the Wildcat Ridge, which was surprising. It was just kind of trotting along the trail in front of me and took off, and I didn't get a very good look at it or a picture of it. I was surprised to see it up there. That was a few years ago. And then... I had that, this really great moose experience in Maine on that same trip I told you about where I did Katahdin and Hamlin for the first time. I was going up the Heelan Taylor Trail before getting up towards the ridge. I came around a corner and I was like, oh, hikers up there, are they wearing all brown? Are their packs brown? Like, what's going on? And then I realized like, a second later it was the rear end of a moose. <laughs> and... And the moose just stood there and hung out in the trail. It was pretty dense vegetation on both sides, so I wasn't going anywhere. Just kind of stood there, and the moose did its thing. It was just browsing, and so I took out my camera, took some pictures, stayed at a safe distance. I mean, I know it's really important not to distress the wildlife, you know, because they're getting by so marginally as it is, especially moose. They have all the trouble with ticks now and winter ticks and habitat loss. You don't want to stress them out. So as long as the moose continued browsing, I was like, all right, I think it's okay. I watched it, waited probably 15 or 20 minutes until the moose finally ambled into the woods a little bit. And it was still there. It could still see me. 
And finally, when I felt like it was at a safe distance and it was doing its thing, I tiptoed by. <laughs> um, so that was a really fun moose experience. I had kind of another one like that on Wombeck last April, a smaller moose. And I was just going over the summit to check out the Trail of the Weeks because I knew I was going to be doing those peaks. And I wanted to see, it was April, the still snowy, wanted to see if it was broken out. I came over the summit and there was a little moose there browsing. I was able to watch it quietly and when it started moving towards me, I, I just walked away. But the one kind of scary moose encounter I had <laughs> was this past winter up in Maine. It was the end of December, right before New Year's. I was up there for a week working on the 100 highest and I was trying to get all those hard winter bushwhacks that are up in the Stratton and Rangeley area. Driving or you know going in all these logging roads that are closed in the winter. So the friend that I was with, his truck broke down that day and he had to go figure out what to do about the truck. So I ended up going solo and this was to trying to do East Kennebago. It was a four mile ski in on logging roads and snowmobile trails. So I had my backcountry skis. After the four or so miles, I kind of hit the end of where things were broken out and I switched to snowshoes. I ditched my skis. I was breaking trail up the logging road for a little ways trying to get to the summer trailhead. It was already late in the day because of the truck issue and everything, probably four o'clock, which is almost dark at that point. And all of a sudden, these two huge moose come out of the woods onto the logging road in front of me. And I'm thinking, cool, I've seen moose before. I'm just going to hang out, let them do their thing, let them wander off. Took out my camera, and I think it was a, a male and a female because the, the male had a very large rack and that big bearded thing on his chin. And, and he started like waving his antlers around. And I thought, oh, that's cool. Maybe he's trying to shed them, you know? It's, <laughs> it's past rut season. They probably shed them for the winter so they don't have to carry them around. I'm going to watch this for a minute. And then he started waving them around and moving towards me <laughs> as the female moved off into the woods. And at that point, I realized this is, this is maybe not a good situation because I'm like four miles out there in two feet of snow and it's almost dark and I'm about to get trampled by a moose. I look to like my right and my left and it's a logging road. So the fir trees are my height. <laughs> There's nowhere really to hide. So all I could do was turn around and as fast as I could hike in two feet of snow, <laughs> I snowshoed back the way that I'd come and just kind of kept looking over my shoulder and got around a bend and was kind of terrified that the moose was going to come after me, but apparently he was just bluffing because he, uh, he did not. <laughs> so I hightailed it back to my skis and skied out in the dark, afraid that I was going to ski into a moose in the middle of the road or something <laughs> while it was dark. <laughs> Needless to say, I did not get East Kittabago that day. I think it was for the best. I'm definitely glad that the moose wasn't blocking my way of egress of getting out of there. And uh, yeah, I went back and got it a few days later and saw tracks and scat and wallows from possibly the same two moose. But yeah, so wow. you gotta be careful out there. <laughs> So do you prefer hiking solo or with a group of people? I've done both. I've definitely done a lot more solo hiking. And I think overall, I guess I prefer the freedom of solo hiking. You can just go where you want, when you want, start when you want, end when you want, go at your own pace, stop to take pictures, stop to have a snack. So I've really enjoyed all of my solo hiking. I mean, in winter, I always, if it's, especially if it's a remote hike 
or a difficult trail or, or sketchy conditions, I always go in groups. And then of course, when I'm guiding, I'm in a bigger group. And groups are fun because you get to know people and you, yeah. you have people to talk to and pass the time. I guess I prefer smaller groups to larger groups because that way it's easier to interact with everybody and you're not all strung out on the trail. But yeah, you know, usually if I go with other people, it's just one or two other friends and, you know, they're people whose skills I know and trust. And uh, I usually try to go with people who I know are more experienced than I am. <laughs> Uh, that way I figure they can bail me out if I get into trouble. <laughs> <laughs> What's next? Do you have any specific hiking-related plans for the future? Oh, boy. Well, you met my puppy, Baxter. So yeah. <laughs> I have a four-and-a-half-month-old puppy now. She's a rescue. So she's going to be my trail dog. So right now, my hiking has slowed down quite a bit because with dogs, you have to introduce them pretty slowly to the trails. The way that their growth plates develop, they advise against doing anything too steep or too hard in the first six months or a year. So I've been getting Baxter out on shorter trails, you know, less elevation. Got her into the Mahusics last weekend doing trail work and she loved it. She loves being on the trail. So I think with the puppy, I'll probably work on some redlining this summer and fall of some of the easier trails, some of the lower peaks. This winter, I definitely want to push to finish my winter 100 highest and get that done. I'm at 80 something, so it'll be tight, but hopefully if the weather's all right, I can get that done. And uh, next year, I'd love to have Baxter do her 48 and it'll kind of be, you know, working on a fourth round for me, thinking about gridding. <laughs> the grid's probably a longer term goal, not something I'm going to try to bang out in a couple of years. So eventually, over the course of my lifetime, I hope I'll get a grid. I hope I'll get to redline. And I'd really like to do a couple of through hikes. I'd, I'd love to take Baxter out on the Appalachian Trail in a couple of years for a through hike and get out west, either on my own or with her, do some sections of the PCT or the John Muir Trail. I know you've done a lot of that <laughs> stuff, so I'll ask you more about that for advice. <laughs> so now I'll ask you some questions that are unrelated to hiking. What do you do for a living? Oh gosh, I've done a lot of different things. My training is in environmental studies and I've taught college courses in environmental science, um, environmental issues, ecology, natural history at a number of different colleges. I've also taught high school and middle school science in the North Country and uh, the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. I've worked for a lot of different nonprofits doing education and outreach and I'm currently working on a book on the New England landscape in addition wow. to guiding for Redline. So I'm really excited about that project because it gives me the opportunity to take all the things I've learned and all the places I've loved and put it in a format that I can share that information with other people, you know, with other folks who are visiting the area, who love the area, who want to get out there and check out some new things and, and learn about the geology and ecology of the region. So I'm really excited about that. And then I also have a lot of things I've been involved with as a volunteer. I, I maintain a section of the Appalachian Trail up in the Mahusics, so that's a lot of fun. I volunteer as a naturalist with AMC, and I've been involved with the Appalachian Mountain Club's New Hampshire chapter with their Conservation Education Committee and um, the Clubwide Conservation Committee 
and a lot of different, you know, different AMC committees that have kept me busy. And I've also been working on the campaign against the Northern Pass this past year. So I put a lot of time into that. And I'm sure you know that's a big issue up here. And one project that a lot of people in the North Country and majority are opposed to. So we're trying to raise awareness and it's kind of in the final stages of the decision making process. So a lot of people are still trying to make sure everybody's voices are heard. So that's something I'm passionate about and I've been putting a lot of time into. (laughs) What's your favorite food? Oh, favorite foods. I love Indian food and Thai food and sadly I can't get those in Lancaster so maybe that's why they're so special because whenever I go to a a real city I'll try to seek out an Indian or Thai restaurant to go to. (laughs) What's your favorite non-hiking related book? I guess my favorite technically non-hiking book is probably Desert Solitaire by Edward Abbey. I'm a fan. (laughs) If you could either fly or be invisible which one would you choose and why? I would love to fly. When I was a kid, <laughs> oh, I I would fly in some of my dreams. And I remember at some points when I was a child, I, I would have those kind of lucid dreams where you sort of realize you're in a dream and you can actually kind of control what happens in the dream and uh, what you do. Uh, has that ever happened to you? <laughs> uh, actually, no. Oh my gosh, it's the coolest thing. And so whenever uh, that would happen and I was realized that I was in a dream, I would be like, this is a dream. I can fly. <laughs> I just start flying. And uh, so that, that would be cool to do in real life as well. <laughs> Dogs or cats? Oh, I'm definitely a dog person. For one thing, I'm super allergic to cats. Oh. And one of the neighborhood cats, when I was a little girl, I, was, I would pet it and play with it. And one day it just randomly attacked me. So that kind of soured me to cats a little bit. And I, I love dogs. I had, this is my second rescue dog that I've had. And, uh, She's a great puppy. She's, you know, dogs are just so loyal and it's like they would follow you to the ends of the earth. (laughs) Chips or popcorn? Popcorn all the way. Popcorn was actually, I think, my first solid food when I was a baby. Wow. <laughs> um, my my parents always tell this story how my dad would sit me on his lap when I was six months old, and he would break the soft little pieces yeah. off of the popcorn and feed them to me. And then one day, at some point in my development, I figured out that like my hand was connected to my body and (laughs) I reached into the bowl of popcorn and just grabbed a whole handful and just laughed. (laughs) And you know, I guess I've been um, addicted to popcorn ever since. Yeah. (laughs) Cheddar or Swiss? Cheddar for sure. And a good Cabot New York cheddar is fantastic. (laughs) So if you had to pick one, summer hiking or winter hiking in the whites? Oh, this is also such a hard question. <laughs> there are pros and cons to both. You know, I think, I mean, my initial reaction is summer hiking just because the weather is usually nice and you can go a lot lighter. You don't have to carry as much stuff. You can go faster. It's easier to go backpacking and camp out. So I think probably my preference is summer, but there's just something about winter hiking. It's tough. It's hard. You need more skills. You know, you're putting yourself at more risk, but I think the rewards are also greater because you reach those just incredible landscapes. Presidentials in winter, you feel like you're on the moon or something. (laughs) Things that you know that most other people are never going to see or experience in their lifetimes. And there is something so magical about that that makes it so worth the effort, I think. I 
I could never let go of winter hiking. <laughs> okay, well, thank you. <laughs> well, thanks so much. It was great to join you today and chat. <laughs> the preservation of the environment is important if we want to continue having beautiful mountains to hike. We strongly encourage you to donate to Union of Concerned Scientists, or UCS. It is an amazing organization that does important scientific research to help prevent negative effects of climate change. You can learn more about UCS and donate to their organization at ucsusa.org.